Hey everybody, this is Lori and this is our podcast, Inclusive Talks Sustainability. And I am the founder and CEO of a company called Inclusivity and also the author of a new book on sustainable living. You can save the world. In fact, you're the only one who can. And our podcast and our book and our company are all devoted to sustainability and creating a future where everyone thrives. And we have lots of guests on the, co- on the podcast who are doing things to make the world better. And, one of, and our guest today is no exception to that. Our guest is Allison O'Neill, and she is the founder of a foundation called Beauty Becomes You, as well as a CEO of a company. And so, Allison, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Lori. I'm very happy to be here. I'm happy to talk to your audience. So my first question for you is tell us a little bit about Beauty Becomes You and then also about your company so we can, we can sort of know what you're doing right now. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, beauty becomes you are three words that my father left as a trust to me. He said that to me just before he died, and it turned into a charity shortly after he passed away. Um, and it we focus on preventing failure to thrive syndrome, actually. So speaking of thriving, um, and failure to thrive syndrome is... Um, well, it was originally identified in premature infants in 1962, and that's where you see the incubators that have the holes and people can pet the babies. And they learned at the time that uh, uh, that babies would take their um, in, in the food better and et cetera, et cetera, and thrive. Well, today we have an entirely different generation and population where seniors are isolated. And we certainly learned a lot about that in the last year, but even prior to the last year, the senior population with the loss of their spouses or families living far away or uh, illnesses causing that, um, they need to be touched. And so what we do is we provide aesthetic health services, um, hair, skin, nail, massage therapy that actually affect their good hygiene, which affects overall health and, um, and then mental health because people have a renewed sense of dignity and self-worth. Oh, I love that. So that is the Beauty Becomes You. And that's Beauty Becomes You Foundation. Uh-huh. Okay. And then you have a company that's related to that. Is that accurate? Yeah. Uh, also focusing on the quality of life for uh, senior adults and those with disabilities at any age, actually. Um, unlike many companies who are for-profit and looking for social good, I had the social good first with the charity and we needed to figure a way to fund the charity because we have served over 5,000 people, more than 15,000 services. Um, and uh, I've trained um, beauty professionals, uh, hundreds and hundreds, actually well over 500 now. Um, so I wanted to figure out how we could actually fund it. Uh, so I started Senior Select Seal, which is a certification mark that um, that ensures that products are easier to use and packaging is easy to open because that's certainly uh, those are things that allow people to live independently lifelong. And we start struggling with those things pretty early on. But as you get older and you're on your own to open a package, everybody's been there, whether it's a water bottle or whether it's um, a package to get in for a pair of scissors that you can't even get into because you can't get to the package. But those are just a couple of examples. But we also test products like um, 
Wellness Mats, which is one company that has a, a very nice cushioned mat that has graduated edges and you can stand on it for long periods of time. And that becomes a difficulty when people age too. So you, you're gonna be cooking in your kitchen if you wanna continue doing those types of things to be able to stand a long period, you have to have some kind of um, meaningful support and the wellness mats were designed for that. Um, and then we've also tested um, clothing like MagnaReady shirts, which um, look like like beautiful Oxford shirts, but they open and close with magnets. And the woman that developed that, her husband had Parkinson's disease. Um, we've also tested um, something, uh, uh, certain types of um, incontinence products that actually work for longer periods that um, hold more water. So um, I come from a healthcare background, specifically in dermatology and wound care. And so I'm always looking for things too, that will prevent any kind of skin breakdown or things like that as skin gets fragile. So when you use these types of incontinence products, they don't all work the same. They're not all the same quality, but there is a level of dignity, but there's also a level of health. So if you can keep the moisture wicked away uh, from the skin itself, you actually prevent that breakdown over time. And so as we know, a lot of people are left too long periods like in nursing homes, et cetera. So, so I wanted to test products that were um, helpful in that role. We've, we've tested kitchen products. We've tested Swiffer. We've tested, um, uh, gosh, uh, things that wheel carts that you can wheel, yeah. we've tested all yeah. kinds of things, 157 products to date and only 96 have passed. Um, so in the packaging, and we're always looking for new ideas and mm -hmm. asking people to, you know, make a suggestion. Um, but anyway, so if your audience has any suggestions, that would be great. I love that. So I, as, as you know, I'm a geriatric psychologist in my other life. So I so appreciate everything that you're doing and failure to thrive is a, a common concern that brings people to the rehab, for example, because um, something happens and they get hurt and are needing to go to rehab because of failure to thrive as well. So I appreciate that. Yeah, thanks, thanks. Um, yeah, completing that thought, I mean, we're talking about premature infants, but with seniors, it actually starts well before it gets into the medical diagnosis. Absolutely. It is a medical diagnosis that you've just identified, and it generally is later in yeah. um, stages of, of loss of health. And you'll see people who are in nursing homes being moved from one bed to another or another room, and that significantly impacts their quality of life, and they do fail to thrive. But failure to thrive also has a mental health component, which occurs when people are still living alone or living um, single, singular, singularly, um, even if they live in a community, because if they lose their interest in participating with other social activities or um, it even goes to people losing their interest in eating or taking medication. And um, you know, this is where we found that when people actually go to have their hair done or their nails done, or they get a massage, that interaction number one with the professional is a key part of socialization. It reinforces their sense of, of, of value and worth. Um, because those conversations are really valuable. Um, even the beauty professionals say, you know, they, um, a lot of them have never worked with older adults till they come and work with our program. And they'll say, wow, 
I, I was afraid. A lot of people are afraid of working with older adults because they think they're so fragile or they're not really sure what to expect. And, um, and they say, I'm coming back. I can't wait to just come back on my own. And that's what's exciting, you know, when you actually inspire someone to look at a different angle of their career. But this whole aspect of touch is really the key. And, you know, years ago, we started talking about touch therapy and um, there are institutes that really focus on the, the, um, the application of touch therapy, but it's really this simple, you know, go get your hair done, go get your nails done. And when you get a compliment on, oh, your nails look so pretty or, your, or you look so beautiful, your hair looks great, you look great. Usually if somebody compliments your dress, it makes you feel like you got an A on your report card. And the reason it feels that way, because that speaks to your self-worth, but you know, we all know what we did to get A's on our report card. We had to study, we had to you know, pass the tests, we had to write the report, we had to do all the work. So when somebody says you look great or your hair looks good, whatever the compliment is, that feeling is similar to the feeling you get on the A on the report card because you've put the work in. You found the person that could do your hair the way you like it, or you have mastered something to do with your makeup or, or the clothing that you choose. Even men have the same sensation if they're told they look you know, very handsome because they've put the work in or you've exercised and you feel physically fit. It all matters. It just, it goes right to the core. It's, um, I'm very excited because really what we're talking about here is what I refer to as aesthetic health. And I've been writing about aesthetic health since the 1980s when I started a clinic at Emory University uh, for people who had actually lost their appearance to trauma uh, like burns or car accidents and chronic diseases like lupus and vitiligo and then congenital deformities, uh, birthmarks, et cetera. And at the time we didn't have laser for birthmarks. We, um, and we didn't have a lot of this corrective kinds of aesthetic, medical aesthetic, um, literally medical aesthetic procedures that we have today, like lasers and fillers and Botox and all these things. Um, so cosmetics and specifically camouflage cosmetics were the only thing we really had to work with to normalize appearance. And so I could actually teach someone to use um, this particular type of makeup very efficiently and they would have a renewed sense of self-worth and confidence working in going back to work because people left their jobs. Right. It's very interesting. A lot of things I had, the youngest patient I ever saw was eight months old. And the reason I saw her was because she had a birthmark and her parents wanted to have photographs taken of her without her birthmark. Mm -hmm. So I taught them how to do the camouflage because um, even then, this was back in the 80s, we didn't have the digital stuff we have now where you can erase something. It wasn't that easy. So they, they needed to know how to do that. But it was really, you know, I was thought that was really the parents issue, obviously not the eight month olds issue. Um, and, and that's when I began, um, not only, I, I, I worked with both families and, and the people who were um, living with the actual changes, but you know, you meet people like burn survivors who look like melted candles and um, they 
are amazing human beings because burn survivors are one of the highest suicide rates of all kinds of things. So when I would work with them, um, a lot of them were amazing. They chose to start their own charities. Uh, one of the guys that I helped, he actually was getting his MBA at Emory and I was going for a job interview and I asked him if he would come help me negotiate for the job. And I got this job. Um, I was told that the doctor would spend 15 minutes with me and don't expect more. And he spent three hours with us. Goodness. And I ended up working with him for 15 years. So um, yeah, it, it's so important. Um, nobody, and if you're here, this is what I believe. If you're here, you're here for a reason. Mm -hmm. And um, aesthetic health is, uh, just it, it, it has been kind of skimmed over. We take, we think beauty is very superficial, you know, oh, doesn't she look nice? And you take it for granted. But again, a lot goes into somebody looking beautiful yep. and you deserve the compliment if you are given one. Um, so it's, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting. I mean, somebody can naturally have beautiful eyes um, and other people work at it. Um, we all have something beautiful about us and some of the other things that uh, occur uh, along with the things that we actually do to enhance our appearance is there is just a natural beauty that each person carries with them. And that's more of the countenance, we call it, which is this essence of who we are. And uh, when you can see that, I often think of women who loved a garden and they're in their garden and they're all covered in dirt and they've got their gloves on and their hats on and whatever, but they're just in their place of just this love in their heart. They love gardening and all you can, and I think the best word is lovely. I mean, I, any gardener I've ever seen, I just think they're lovely. Anyway, there you go. Um, fantastic answer. And I, so I want to know you're, you come from this healthcare background. Before you got into aesthetics, um, what what were you doing in the healthcare? Oh, no. Aesthetics came first. I wanted, oh, I, okay. I was a very heavy child and I had been ridiculed for being fat and it was very important. To, appearance was just, I knew how important it was, but, um, you know, in the seventies, in eighties, people really were, they, you know, we still looked at appearance and beauty, like, uh, glamorous and, uh, movie stars. And, um, if you thought about your appearance, there wasn't a lot of support like there is today. I mean, we know today people get bullied for, you know, wearing glasses, they get bullied for, and what they did then, um, you got picked on for being fat. I mean, my family called me fat pig in the mud and they dance around me. And you know, you're a third grader and you're 135 pounds and, and then you get in trouble for getting upset about it. That's what drove me to wanting to do something to help people who had appearance differences uh, understand them, understand what they could do to really um, work with them. Because one of the things, and then later I, I um, when I was on the path, um, I was actually, I went to three colleges and looked for one that would teach the psychology of appearance, but nobody had that. There wasn't such a thing. So um, by my third college, um, 
I, I was uh, studying economics mm -hmm. and uh, my mother came home one day and said, I, she had met a makeup artist that worked with a plastic surgeon, a burn surgeon in Augusta, Georgia. And she said, maybe that's what you should do. And so I went, um, she, the woman would not meet me actually. Um, this is a longer story, but you know, when you, when you, um, this is why I like to tell stories about my life because I think uh, so many people think oh, I want to do that. Mm -hmm. But then something happens and they go, oh, maybe I'm not supposed to do it. Yeah. But when my mother said that, and it was this, my mother and father always said, you will be at the time when uh, your parents kind of identified what you would be good at. And then that's what you did. So either you went to college or you didn't go to college. Or um, in my case, my parents said, you'll be a great nurse and a great mother. And uh, I didn't want to do either one of those things. The <laughs> one because I didn't want somebody telling me what to do because yep. I'm pretty independent. But I wanted to do something that helped people. And I knew that since the time I was a little girl. Mm -hmm. And I knew I wanted to serve millions of people. Some of the time I was like 11 years old. Um, and Anyway, um, so when I went to college and then was not finding it, and then I was, my mom met this woman. It took me about a month and a half to meet her because she wouldn't answer my phone calls. And one day I was working, I was going to college still, but I was working uh, as a little bartender in uh, this private club in Augusta, Georgia. And I heard um, her last name. I heard them refer to this gentleman in the room and it was her husband. Oh and I said, I've been trying to meet your wife for a few months. And he said, oh, here's her number. And you know, we didn't have cell phones then. So you know, he gave me the back number that I could get to her. And sure enough, she answered and I said, I've been trying to reach. She goes, okay, fine. I'm giving <laughs> a lecture. <laughs> I, yeah, I have a bit of audacity. I'll tell you, you have to, if you're going to be a pioneer or an entrepreneur, which I am, but, um, the perseverance that it takes to, uh, just stay focused and to continue. It's, it's, it's really not work because there's just this little voice back here that keeps saying, just keep going, just keep going. Just keep, it's not hard. If you're on the right path, you know, you are. So anyway, I, tracked her down. She invited me to a talk she was giving. I really didn't understand what she was doing until I went to that talk, which she was giving to a group of cosmetologists from a local cosmetology school. Okay. So I was in college. I'm sitting there in this room in the basement of the hospital, and she's showing slides of different patients that she had um, been taking care of. Now, she wasn't a nurse. She had been an English teacher, and she was very beautiful. Again, you know, we hear a lot about this today. We watch Mad Men, you see how women were treated and, you know, you understand this show, Mad Men, um, that, you know, women really were treated as less than. And so here she was, this beautiful 35-year-old English teacher that this plastic surgeon met. And he said, you know, I'm going to need somebody to do makeup for my patients. And there was a big there was a big movement back then to help after someone had a facelift, you know, covering the bruises so people could get back out and not be known that they had a facelift. Um, but bigger than that was this burn clinic that he had. And he sent her for a six week training program out in Beverly Hills, it cost $6,000. And um, so here I am in the basement and I'm watching these stories that she's telling of uh, 
some of her patients. And this one woman who she tells the story about um, was in the yard with her husband and they were raking leaves and they raked a big pile of leaves and her husband put gasoline on the leaves and threw the match on and she happened to be there when the wind hit and oh, she no. was burned from head to toe and drawn into what we call a puppy dog position which is where the skin just knits together it melts and so for 10 years she was in this position she had burns and there there was not much she could do and she became a recluse um and her son was never allowed to bring any children in. Her husband did all the grocery and clothing shopping until one day when she was home watching the TV on a noonday show and this plastic, this plastic surgeon, the burn surgeon, Joe still was his name, he's no longer alive, but he um, was talking about what they could do to release after burns and you know, give people. So she ended up going there. She had over 300 surgeries through him and her story was so remarkable as I sat there, you know, I just cried. She ended up working as a, uh, one of the samplers in the local grocery store where she was then re-engaged with yeah. you know, people. So for 10 years, she wasn't. Another little girl had been, uh, I shouldn't tell this story because it'll put people off of Krispy Kreme, but um, it was before hairnets and her hair got stuck into that. And she was, anyway, a lot of stories that were so devastating. But while I sat in that room, um, in this chair off to the side, I was there by myself. Essentially, I wasn't part of that other group. And I just heard God tell me, this is what you're here for, help develop it. And that's the voice that carries me to this day. That's so awesome. I ended up asking her after the class if she would train me and she said, no way. <laughs> she didn't want the, the, um, the competition. Oh. Uh -huh. Cause it was Augusta, it was 1979. And uh, she said, there's really not enough people here. And so anyway, she said, why don't you go see this doctor in Miami? And I just met him and I bet he's going to, he's a dermatologist, very famous dermatologist. Anyway, remember I told you she was very beautiful. So I was kind of a dorky 19 year old. I drove nine and a half hours to, I got a meeting with him and I sat at his desk and he, you know, had his charts in front of him. I sat on the other side and he just kept writing in his charts as I was ex just going on about how important this was for people to have access to this kind of therapy that didn't really exist at the time it was so new so anyway after my long uh speech he looked up from his notebooks and he said peggy skinner is very beautiful isn't she and I said, she is and he said my advice to you is to go back to school get your business degree and get married this will never be a field I left there and drove nine and a half hours home thinking this is going to be a field. Mm -hmm. I'm going to make it a field. And so the next I got home and I just put myself to work. I started calling all over the country to see where I could be trained. There was nothing. There was nothing. By the way, my parents said no to the $6,000 for six weeks. They said, we're not paying that for <laughs> I don't come from a wealthy family that was just going to like, sure, go do whatever. No. I trained for eight years. Um, I did find a, a school in Florida that the woman who owned it had uh, been in a car accident 
six months before I met her. She had broken her orbit, uh, uh, orbital socket in this car accident, her neck uh, in two places, her pelvis, um, and she had a halo on. It's a, it's a, it's yeah. a contraption that you, you know people may not know, but it holds your neck in place. And then she also had broken her jaw. So she had, she was so, she had more things that she was being held up with uh, than anyone I'd ever seen. And she said, I know what you wanna do because the, the, the practice was called paramedical cosmetology. And when I would say that, people would say, does that mean you wanna work in an ambulance on the way to the hospital and make somebody look better? Because that's the only you know, real relation we understood with the word paramedic, yeah. uh, paramedical. So around medicine is what it means. And um, anyway, I went through the school and I was so excited because uh, I left college and I went to mm -hmm. beauty school. And in 1979, that was just after the movie Grease and the famous, what was the famous song? Beauty School Dropout. Right. So I left college, my, my third college I had been in and going now to beauty school. And I'm like, this is, I can't believe I'm in beauty school. I didn't tell anybody. It was a trade and, and to my family to go to college was really the thing to go to beauty school not so much. And just society really thought that then too. Things have changed dramatically. It was a trade. Now it is a profession. Mm -hmm. And I'm happy to say I've contributed to that advancement. But um, I went to the school and at the end, two weeks before I finished, she asked me to come to her office, called me out of a treatment room. I was actually doing a facial. And at the time you would do, um, you put the creams directly on your hands. Today we use gloves. But when I went to her office, she said, I'm not going to open the clinic that I told you. And this had been driving me through beauty school. Like that's the only thing that got me through. I had gone to a special course for a week that uh, was called, was in paramedical cosmetology. I went with the leaders. It was amazing. Um, and I had that under my belt and I was ready to get this clinic going. And then she said, we're not doing it. I went back in the treatment room and I was working on this client and I took the cream off the back of my hand and my hand was just covered in this rash. Oh. And that rash then took over my whole body over the course of a week or so. Um, and when I was younger, I had eczema growing up and asthma. And, uh, and I went to the dermatologist because this was just like, it felt like fire ants were crawling mm -hmm. on me. And they uh, said, oh, it's, it's a severe form of eczema called atopic dermatitis. And they put me on prednisone. I was sent off to uh, two weeks later before I even graduated and didn't get to graduate with my class. But they sent me to Virginia for this company, um, Adrian R. Pell, to go for training. And I was going to work in a beauty salon. Now, this was like being sent to prison when you didn't commit a crime. I wanted to work in a medical environment and now I'm working in a beauty salon and my skin just got worse and worse and worse. And I was hospitalized eventually. I was told I'd have to live in a bubble the rest of my life, that I was allergic to the products. But what I did, I kept working. I, I just did everything I possibly could because I really believed what I heard that day in that basement of the hospital from God, this is what you're here for, help develop it. And I kept working. I 
I didn't know what I was doing, but um, any kind of makeup opportunity I got, I would get out there. We didn't have really great um, camouflage makeups at the time. Um, there was one and it was Lydia O'Leary. And uh, Lydia O'Leary was a woman that in the 1950s had a birthmark. Mm -hmm. She was an artist and um, she went to see her doctor one day with the, with the birthmark covered and, and he said, wow, what did you do? And she said, well, I've used my oil paints and she painted, so which are toxic. So she, <laughs> he helped her create a non-toxic cover-up, the first one, but it was very red and everybody looked like they could have been in uh, the Bonanza you know, the TV show. Sure. Um, but uh, anyway, that uh, was interesting. Uh, but I, at the same time, I wanted to learn all different kinds of makeup techniques. So I went and volunteered. I became the head of, I was still, you know, 19, uh, 20. And um, the St. Petersburg, not St. Petersburg, Russia, but St. Petersburg, Florida, opera company, um, I went and was their makeup artist and made people look like they were, you know, drinking too much or had wounds or, you know, and got to play around with that. I didn't have any training in it. I just kind of went and found the products and figured out how to do it. And then I ended up, uh, being the makeup artist for a, a black, um, beauty pageant and everybody in it. I, and it's in, and there are special techniques that you use in different situations, the good news is somebody did win, so I must have done an okay job. Um, but I did learn all these different techniques by throwing myself into situations that were not comfortable because I didn't really know what I was doing. I just had good intentions. Um, so then I, I, but I was still sick during those period, that period of time. And then that was, um, you know, I was working through that. And, and then I went to the Medical College of Georgia where the doctors all came into my room after two weeks and said, you're going to probably have to live in a bubble the rest of your life because you are allergic to the environment. And I said, but I can't do that. I'm here for a reason. So I didn't live in a bubble. I moved to Atlanta and my sister was here. Um, anyway, she was working at CNN and said, Allie, come to see, come here. Um, CNN had just started. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was here six weeks. I went and spoke to a plastic surgeon thinking Atlanta would be so much more advanced. Right. And I, I'm almost done with this part, but um, I, I went to this one plastic surgery practice and uh, this was the leader. This guy was the grandfather of plastic surgery. And uh, his administrator, again, sat across the desk from me as I told her what I wanted to do. And she said, we've had people like you before and they let our patients down and we have no interest in what you have to offer. Mm -hmm. And I left there defeated. And you know, my skin condition, eczema, I'm, I'm really an expert now in metaphysical healing as well. So eczema is your skin screaming out loud when no one is listening to you. So shortly after that, I thought I can't take this anymore. And my depression got greater because of the prednisone. I lost hair, I gained 50 pounds. And, my whole appearance I lost, mm -hmm. which became a, a benefit that I now understand what that feels like. But um, I ended up going to um, uh, the, well, it was a Monday morning, real quick story, and then I'll stop and you can ask me another question or we can stop, whatever you want to do. But um, I 
woke up on a Monday morning, very depressed, and I turned the TV on, and it was a, a, a local, you know, junior college, Brian Institute was advertising, and I felt like I had failed in every possible way in my life. I had left college to do this, and now I'm sick, and I can't do it, and I can't find a place to do it, and I know it's supposed to happen, and every horrible thought that could come came, and I thought I can't live any longer, but something said, you know, make one last, take one last chance, call Emory, it was right up the street, and um, so I called the Department of Dermatology, and the receptionist, when I said I need to see someone, laughed. And she said, this is Emory. You can't just walk in here. You have to have a referral and it takes three months. I said, well, if I don't see someone today, I won't see anyone tomorrow. And that woman saved my life. She said, there's an opening at one o'clock. We'll see you then. And that's when I met the chief of Emory Dermatology. Anyway, that was, that's just the beginning. Wow. So was this, it sounds like this meeting then was a changing point. Well, it was an emergency medical appointment. Yeah. And the doctor came to my door. Now this is two or three months after I'd seen these other doctors who told me I'd have to live in a bubble. Um, I'm pretty much a mess, like just head to toe again, hair loss, uh, 50 pounds heavier. My skin looks like... Um, you know, like head to toe, it's just rashy, broken, bleeding. Very, it's a horrible disease. Yeah. Um, and he stood at the door of my exam room and just said, how are you living in that body? And I was sitting on the edge of the table and, um, and I said, I have something I have to do. And so he came in and um, I was really shy. I was pretty shy. And uh, when he came in and, he, and I told him what I'd gone through with these other doctors and the prednisone, I said, I don't want to be on prednisone anymore. I know it's made me very depressed. And he said, okay, I'll see. And they gave me something and said, I'll see you in three weeks. Mm -hmm. Well, what happened? And I'm the kind of person that believes that in God, and I believe that good things happen. And I know people want to believe in the universe or whatever it is that works for people, but I am, whatever it is, it's good. Um, but Within that three-week period, my sister, who I said earlier, worked for CNN, mm -hmm. flew to New York. Sitting next to her on the plane was my doctor, and they began to speak. And this was prior to HIPAA. And um, she was able to, he, she said, oh, my sister's a patient at Emory Dermatology, and she looks a little like me unless she's blonde. And he said, I know who your sister is. She's my patient. And I haven't seen anyone with that disease in the 30 years of my practice as bad as she has it. And so she was able to tell him what I had been trying to do for the two and a half years prior to that. And he said, when she came home, she said, Dr. Jones said for you to talk to him about what it is you want to do. And so when I went back, didn't know how to ask him. I just said, do you think I need to get my degree and do I just become a psychologist or a dermatologist or a nurse or what should I do? And he said, no, I want to hire you as my assistant. And so he took me under his wing and he trained me like medical, the, the derm residents taught me. He goes, you need to know about all these disorders and diseases that we work with. And he's, you need to understand the medical components and you need to do those, but you don't need there's not really a specialty for you at this point. Mm -hmm. 
So I really had to create it. So he let me do that. I was in the clinic 15 minutes before everybody and I stayed later than everybody cleaning or doing whatever it was. And there were um, three, I, unusually, there were three female dermatologists mm -hmm. and then Dr. Jones and Dr. Richel. Um, and that was really powerful because, you know, again, this is the early 80s and women were not really strong like they are today, right? And um, to get into dermatology is not easy. It's a small field and everybody wants to be in it. Well, not everybody, but you don't have to have emergency, you know, a hospital on call, you know, to do all that stuff that, you know, more internal medicine and those types of medical specialties do. But um, these, this is interesting. So they all knew what I wanted to do and I would assist each of them. And I helped with uh, Dr. Richel, Robert Richel's, renowned and today he's like the leader in contact irritant dermatitis. So that was also a time where cosmetics were not fully, you know, developed as they are today. We still have problems with people being allergic to different ingredients. And mm -hmm. obviously people are um, acutely aware of things that may be carcinogens. Um, but more importantly are those things that, um, I mean, not more importantly, but because that's certainly important, but when you're talking about carcinogens, those tests are probably those tests are normally done on mice and rats, and they make them eat, uh, you know, gallons or drink gallons of it or whatever, and that's all they get to to show that it's not a good thing. Well, if we ate or drank anything, even too much chocolate, it's probably going to cause some problems. So at any rate, um, I I got the benefit of working with Dr. Richel on the contact irritant dermatitis um, clinics and also doing all the other treatments with lupus patients and scleroderma and even leprosy patients I met and other people who were losing their noses due to cancer and things like that. Um, so I was the wound healing person and I helped with all these other things. I, I had an amazing education there. And then I ended up working with um, 20, 20 to 30 other doctors in their clinics outside of that because we had groups and different things I worked with. So, but at Emory, uh, I was there for a couple of months and one of the doctors came in, Dr. Spraker, the pediatric dermatologist, and she said, Allison, there, and this was like Thanksgiving, and I started there in September, mm -hmm. and she said, there's an allergist who works in Atlanta, and he's working with your condition, maybe you should go see him, so you know, this again, I mean, people don't know history, you've got to know history, mm -hmm. history is so important, um, at that point, dermatologists were at the lowest rung on the medical ladder. You know, they were the acne doctors. Yep. People, eh, you got acne. People didn't know about leprosy. They didn't know about scleroderma. They certainly didn't know about lupus as much as we know today, you know, and people only lived five years then with lupus. Today, they lose 35, 45 yep. whole lifespans, you know, where we have treatments, but then it was a very serious disease. Um, as still is, but uh, you know, at the same time, we now have ways to live with these things that we didn't then. Um, at any rate, so I went to this allergist um, who were just kind of maybe above dermatologists, but he um, walked in the room just like Dr. Jones did because allergists test your blood to see what you're allergic to. And I was still suffering with my condition. Um, and IgE is your immunoglobin level. When you have allergies, your IgE, you know about that. And uh, normal is 40. Mine was 1,550. Oh and he said, how are you living in this world? 
And I said to him, same thing as I said to Dr. Jones, I'm here because I have a reason. I have to create this field and you know, this is what's gonna happen. So ironically, I did all the testing and they found that I was allergic to all grains. Oh, today we call that gluten. Yeah. <laughs> I was allergic to corn. I was allergic to soybean, also a gluten product, but corn. I was allergic to um, milk. I was allergic to eggs. And uh, after the, the, all of this, he gave me a book that I still have today called The Egg-Free, Wheat-Free, Milk-Free Diet. And um, so here I was, 1982, uh, handed this book, but he said, you're going to start your shots next week. Well, the doctors, ironically, in the clinic also called me in and said, Allison, next Wednesday, which uh, we want you to give a proposal for the clinic you've been telling us about. So this was now January. And um, so I told you that this disease was is very elevated above eczema. Um, and I had one of the worst cases. And so these six doctors at Emory, this is how metaphysical healing might work. This is my kind of analogy to help people understand and what happened to me. So I went in for my shot on Monday, nothing happened. Tuesday, not much, nothing happened. Wednesday, I have this big meeting with these five doctors. And Dr. Jones is this very big man and who loved me and was my doctor that taught me everything and understood my passion. And after I gave my proposal, which by the way, I didn't even know what the word proposal meant and somebody helped me put that together, um, said, yes, give some thumbs up. And then Dr. Lynn Drake, who would had later, she later became the president of the American Academy of Dermatology. Um, and she had a mother who was a cosmetologist. So she had seen the benefits uh, from what her mother had done with her clients through her life. And she said, yes, we want this. Then Mary Spraker had the children who were being affected by everything from the eczema to epidermolysis bullosa to birthmarks to all these things that children live with dermatologically. She said yes. And Mary Lynn Spraker was a female specific dermatologist. She said yes. But Dr. Richel, and it had to be unanimous, Dr. Richel, who was the patch test uh, contact irritant dermatitis leader, also a big man, sat with his arms crossed and he was silent for a moment. And then he finally spoke up after everyone said, yes, yes, yes. And he said, and you will be called a dermatologic rehabilitation specialist and you will see patients on Wednesday when none of us have patients and you won't be paid anything extra for it. <laughs> so that's how dermatologic rehabilitation was born. Um, I ended up getting Clinique to come, uh, Lori Roberts, who has Dermablend, started Dermablend camouflage and, um, we created this clinic, um, and then I got, went, decided I needed to go back to school, get my degree in mental health, human services, and I did, and graduated at the top of my class um, with uh, special um, honors in the psychology of appearance and cosmetic treatments. That is an awesome story. So we have, now been, we have now been talking for well over 35 minutes. So what I would like to do <clears throat> is um, end this episode of the podcast. So everybody who's listening enthralled as I am, we're going to end this episode, but we will do a second episode with Allison. And Allison, during that episode, what I'd like to ask you about is 
Well, I have lots of things going on in my head, but what I'd like to ask you about is sort of your hopes for the future as this business grows and as your foundation grows. I'd like to ask about any advice you have to anyone coming up. And I, you know, having heard you talk, uh, your advice for anyone who's, and maybe I'll ask you specifically about who's struggling to get done what they know they're supposed to do. So who's reaching obstacles and they yeah. know they're there, they know they're supposed to be there. And we'll also ask you to tell us a story, even though you've told us many wonderful stories already. And then I'm just going to ask where you think all of this came from for you. Where's the base of all of this? So everybody who's tuned in now, you want to tune in for the second episode. Um, Allison, as you can tell, is a fantastic and enthralling storyteller. So we want to hear more from her. So thank you for being here, Allison. Thank you for being here. Thank you for letting me tell my story. Please, please turn into episode two. <laughs>